over the last tens of thousands of years, our ancestors kind of must have left out a glass of milk and discovered you could turn into yogurt, left out grapes and turn into wine. What can we do now that we have all these incredible tools for studying microbes? Can we design new fermented foods that taste better and that, that are even better for you? Hi, I'm Zoe. Hi, I'm Erica. Hey, Erica. This is our podcast. Well, what do we do on the podcast? Uh, we talk to wellness experts. Well, what do we talk about? Mm, wellness stuff. And why are we doing this? Because we want to have an inclusive conversation about things that you can actually use and apply to your life. Right. We don't think that wellness should feel preachy. We think it should feel like everybody can participate. That's right. So if you like what you hear, tell a friend. Give us five stars. They're do all free. All of the above. All of the above. And think of us as your navigators on the bumpy highway to well. Hi, Erica. Hi, Zoe. <laughs> we're having a really good day today. Yeah, sometimes it just happens, but at least we're both having the same, quote, yeah. good day. We're having the same version of best day of my life. Actually, that's what Kendall said when we first spoke with him on the phone. Is um, it really? Yeah, do you remember we... When we first connected with Kendall of Kingdom Supercultures, which we're about to share more about, I said, hey, how are you? How are you doing? I said, great. Best day of my life. <laughs> I don't remember that was him. I know you've adopted it since then. Yeah, I've adopted it now. Because I'm like, you know what? Maybe where my words go, my brain will fall. Yes. Maybe there's something to it. They, they do say that there is something to it. All right. Well, I'm glad you're having the best day of your life because then I shall follow suit. <laughs> Yeah, but so Kingdom Supercultures, we had a great conversation with co-founder. Co-founder? Yes, with Kendall Debagi. And uh, yeah, he's, I think his actual, he, his enthusiasm was equally as exciting as his business. It's definitely a, uh, it's an entrepreneur's episode. It's also kind of like a, a, a science geek and microbiome geek episode. But there's some really interesting stuff there. Episode, yeah. There's a lot we talk about microbes and fungus and how to basically transform modern day practices with by harnessing the power of fungus. I mean, specifically, well, they do they work with a bunch of different types of yes. We focused particularly on koji because that's just kind of an interesting, cool um, fungus that you can apply to all sorts of different foods and beverages to alter their flavors and tastes. Sake being one of the more well-known, but they're doing some fun things over at Kingdom that are, they're putting, they're putting koji on everything. You can put your koji on that and that's what they're doing. And they're bringing out cool flavors and sugars and things that without adding any like additional sweeteners or calories. And uh, they're, I don't know, there's some really exciting microbiology going on over in the, uh, the Navy Yards. <laughs> They have a pretty fascinating practice. It's a small team, but they're just like this team of mad, brilliant scientists. So anyway, we'll let them tell you about the science of Koji and the magic of it because it is pretty magical. But like, as we say, you know, the future is fungi, literally. Yes, the future is fungi. And we both agree on that. We're doing fungus uh, via Earth and Star. Oh, our new brand, in case you don't know. And they are focusing on fungus uh, in other ways. Not so direct to consumer, but we're going to let them tell you about it. Enjoy, have a listen, learn a little bit, and have the best day of your life. Best day ever. <laughs> Thank you again for making some time to chat with us. 
So let's have officially introduced you as Kendall Debagi. But Kingdom Supercultures. You're not going to ask about the heritage. That's the usual follow-up question to have well, last name. I'm hey, guess- he's conducting this interview. <laughs> I'm going to guess Persian. <laughs> wow, that's really good. Uh, yeah, it's it's Lebanese. Okay, well, because we know a Sadugi. I was going to say, we know a Sadugi. And I, every time I see your name, I think Sadugi. Now that we have properly introduced you, why don't you tell us about the crazy stuff you're doing in the lab? Because we have a little bit of overlap in terms of how we are playing with fungus. Yeah. <laughs> Although you're a little bit more schooled, I would go out on a limb and say. So <laughs> how about you start by giving us a little bit of your background and how you arrived at what you're working on now, which is fascinating. For sure. So my, my background is originally consumer tech. I spent the last 10 years working on two different tech startups. And during those, I had a variety of different health issues. Like I've had food allergies my whole life. I've had some autoimmune issues and then had a particularly acute digestive issue after I traveled abroad for a friend's wedding where I must have picked up some kind of stomach bug. I came back to the States, just had awful chronic stomach pain, lost like 20 pounds in six months. And I saw many different specialists. I went and had all these different scoping procedures done. Um, They recommended different diets, pharmaceutical drugs, even probiotics. I tried all of these things and none of it helped. And I was just so upset because it was impacting my quality of life, my ability to do work without having just constant stomach pain. And so I started reading about it on my own. And at some point I came across literature that, that suggested that it was actually the microbes in your gut that hold the key to your digestive health, which this was like 10 years ago, way before the microbiome became a hot topic. And I became fascinated by this. I thought it was a very interesting concept. And I knew that probiotics hadn't really helped, um, which makes sense because a lot of them are just these freeze-dried dormant capsules of like one or two strains of really, really high concentrations, which is not from an evolutionary perspective what our body is designed to expect. Um, and so, but I like this idea of, of microbes holding the key to your digestive health. So I started experimenting with fermented foods. I added a variety of different fermented foods to my diet, sauerkraut and a few other things. And within a span of six weeks, it had completely changed my stomach pain. I gained back all of my weight, didn't have any more issues. And most interestingly, it also seemed to ameliorate some of these food allergies that I'd had ever since I was a kid. I noticed that I wasn't as, as sensitive to eggs, for instance, and I started eating those again. And so I thought, this is fascinating because none of these doctors that I visited knew anything about this. And I was just going to ask you when, you, when you started doing this experiment, I mean, were you just kind of like making up your own rules as you went along or did you do this with anybody's guidance? Or like, how did you know even like which foods to sort of try or, or sequence or anything like that? Yeah, it was, it was very much just based on research that I'd done on my own. Most of the, the gastroenterologists who I saw, this was like, this was 10-ish years ago. I mean, probiotics, I think now are, are, are often prescribed for different kinds of digestive disorders. Back then, nothing really was. and. Yeah, so this is very much just me going out, reading different scientific literature, reading different books on the topic, and deciding to experiment on myself because all of the prescribed approaches weren't really working. I felt like I had been essentially failed by the traditional medical system and I had to seek out new approaches. Yeah, yeah, you and a whole lot of other people. Okay, and so how did you know to explore these things? Like, What is your schooling, your training, your background? Yeah, at the time, I didn't really have any other than the fact that I had this like health issue that was motivating me to go and try to fix this for myself because I knew that just a few months prior, I'd been relatively healthy. And now I had all this stomach pain and I was losing weight. Um, it just felt really, really unhealthy. Um, and so initially I went and I, and I just read all this stuff my own and, and experimented with different fermented foods and managed to address many of my symptoms. But 
after my last startup was acquired, that was the moment where I said, this is what I want to spend a lot of time going deep on and really understanding. I knew that I wanted to do something related to the microbiome as my next business, but I also recognized that I didn't really know anything about it other than what I'd read in a lot of these like pop culture books. And so that's when I, I went back to school basically at Columbia University by virtue of being in New York for my last startup. And I took all the coursework in molecular microbiology, all the math and statistics for machine learning. And I worked as a microbiome researcher for two and a half years um, with Ravi Sheth, who's now my co-founder. And together, we, we built a lot of systems for, for basically isolating and functionally characterizing the individual strains and microbial communities. So the idea was, from a health perspective, we know that, that every human gut microbiome has tens and thousands of different strains. And yet we didn't have like high throughput ways to basically go into someone's gut and extract out these 10,000 different things that sit inside their gut and then be able to do, do different experiments on them, understand how they respond to foods, how they respond to drugs. We know that people's gut microbiome responses to foods and drugs, et cetera, are very personalized. And yet we didn't have the tools to really study these things. Um, and so a lot of our work was focused on developing these like underlying platform technologies. And at the end of our work, we kind of sat down and we looked at what we built, what the opportunities were. And we thought that there was this very, very interesting opportunity to basically apply a lot of what we've been working on in the context of the human gut towards creating new kinds of foods. And so, of course, my interest in this was, was originated because of my health issues. I knew that fermented foods were very powerful. We kind of recognized that a lot of these fermented foods, things like yogurt, sauerkraut, beer, wine, chocolate, cheese, these are some of the most iconic food categories in human history that we've discovered. They're also interestingly composed just of whole foods and microbes, which is magical when you think about it, that you can take a glass of milk and you can apply lactobacillus to it and you can create yogurt. Or you can take grapes and add wild yeast to it and create wine. The wine is totally different than the grapes. The yogurt is completely different than the milk from a, from a sensory perspective, the way it tastes, the way it feels in your mouth, and also the health benefits of it. And so we thought, okay, these are things that we've randomly discovered in the course of human history. Over the last tens of thousands of years, our ancestors kind of must have left out a glass of milk and discovered you could turn into yogurt, left out grind, left out grapes and turn into wine. What can we do now that we have all these incredible tools for studying microbes? Can we design new fermented foods that taste better um, and that, that are even better for you if we can intentionally put together the community in a rational way? And so the thought here was, if you look at yogurt, every yogurt on the market is basically made from the same three to five microbial strains. And yet there's billions of microbes out there, all with totally different capabilities of making different vitamins, neurotransmitters, creating different flavor compounds. And so what we wanted to do, and this is the basis of the business, is to really build an atlas of all of the microbial diversity that's out there and have these strains ready almost as like a new toolkit for making food. Like if it's true that you can produce something as amazing as yogurt from just milk and microbes with no artificial additives, no genetical modifications, um, and no processing, that's like a whole new toolkit now for making food in the 21st century in a completely natural way without adding anything that people don't need in their bodies to it as we have for the last 100 years. And so we looked at the last 100 years and we said, this is basically a bit about using all of these artificial approaches and chemical additives. That's how we went towards like an industrial food system where we can create food for like, you know, the billions of people that live on earth. Yet now we know, even though we can feed them, we're making many of them unhealthy because we're delivering all of these things in our food. The body doesn't expect them, the body doesn't need. And so the, the, whole, the whole purpose of our business is can we turn microbes into a new manufacturing technology for making foods in the 21st century in a way that doesn't require additives, doesn't require any synthetic or genetic modification, 
And that's what we're working on. It's kind of amazing to think that like all of these wonderful foods that are such staples were accidental. And from what I can tell, like you're one of, I, I don't know anyone who's actually taking that concept and doing something very intentional with it. Why do you think it's taken? Why are you the first person to sort of put these two pieces together? Because if you could have like the Koji factory instead of the Domino Sugar factory, like wouldn't that be amazing? Yeah. I mean, that's the goal ultimately. I think all of this is like very cutting edge and very new. And it's borne out by just the most recent research that we were doing in labs like over the last few years. So, you know, sequencing costs continue to drop our ability to look at microbes and to get their whole genome and understand what they do at a functional level. These are things that you could not do in an automatic high throughput fashion. Only within the last like five years has that become a possibility. And so, yeah, the ability to actually go out and like, and look at the millions and billions of microbes that are out there to try to assemble them into new communities. These require technologies and algorithms that really haven't been developed until very recently. And so this hasn't been an opportunity that's been sitting around for a while. It's, it's leveraging some of the most cutting-edge science. And that, I think, is also something that's very, very interesting about it because, in a way, we're using these like, incredibly novel tools of science to almost like move food production back to the way that it was. Mm-hmm. And so we see the last 100 years really as a diversion from the way that food has been produced traditionally and the way that food ought to be produced. It's really only the last 100 years that we've been putting all of these artificial additives and, and doing all this kind of like chemical processing of the food in order to make it shelf-stable and deliver it all across the world in shelf-stable forms. Before that, the way that we made food shelf-stable is we would ferment it. And so sauerkraut can sit out for months and months and months on your shelf. And you know, thousands of years ago, we didn't have access to refrigeration. We didn't have access to pasteurization technologies. So the way that people made their food safe was they would ferment it. And in the process, we also, we kind of co-evolved with a lot of these microbial communities inside of ourselves. And I think then over time, the human body actually started to expect many of these like interesting secondary metabolites and compounds that are made by the microbes as they're fermenting the foods. And so what is unnatural really is the fact that we haven't been consuming these for the last hundred years. And so in a, in an interesting way, we're actually using these like novel tools of science to take things back to the way that they're meant to be. Yeah, well, we kind of need to reset our guts, which I think we've learned a little bit just anecdotally. Um, certainly, Zoe and I have learned through conversations like this, as well as, you know, just self experimentation that you actually can, like, A, destroy your gut microbe through, you know, means that don't even really seem that crazy just by not eating a balanced diet or even having, you know, being in the hospital, for example, and having like meds kind of course into your systems, anesthesia, all of that can really, or, you know, antibiotics, obviously can just completely take out your your gut and takes actually years to rebuild, um, which some of us have learned the hard way. So it is interesting that what you're saying, you're kind of taking things, you're taking things back in order to bring us forward. So let's talk a bit more about specifically the vehicle that you've landed on, which is this Koji, um, because I think the first question after hearing everything that you've described is like, why would you not... Like, why did you decide to go this route as opposed to becoming like another sauerkraut company? Or, you know, there's, there are so many ways to, to achieve what it is that you're, that you're, you know, that you're advocating and, and inspired by. So how did you arrive at Koji as opposed to another, another way to achieve this fermentation? Yeah. So if you can just describe in a little bit more detail what Koji actually is so that people understand what we're, what we're dealing with. For sure. I, so first, I would actually highlight that Koji Koji is not the only thing that we're doing as a business. I think we have there are two main areas to our fo- two main areas of focus for us. One is 
designing these new communities of microbes. So when you look at a yogurt or you look at a sauerkraut or even a kombucha, these aren't made by a single type of microbe. They're made by communities of microbes that have evolved to live together and to work in concert to ferment food and release all kinds of, of beneficial metabolites in the process. And so one thing that we're doing is we're saying, okay, let's not be satisfied by the three to five strains that people are using to make yogurt. Um, what if we could put together a new community of five to 10 strains or whatever size and we could make a new food from it. So one of the things that we've been very interested in is, you know, kombucha is super hot right now. Everybody loves it. Some of the downsides, though, are, are the fact that it has tons of sugar in it, for instance, which yeah. we know is bad for your gut. So it has living organisms, but it also has lots and lots of sugar. So what we were curious about is, could we design a new culture instead of a traditional scoby that's used in kombucha? Could we pull together natural strains that all like are occurring naturally out in the world in different fermented foods, put them together, and then ferment a beverage that would actually have zero sugar and that also might be shelf-stable so you don't have to refrigerate it. And that's one thing that we've been able to do. And so from a business perspective, we, we don't want to bring these products to market because we think our, our competitive advantage ultimately lies in our ability to do this like research and development, not in like the branding and the marketing and the distribution. So we're working with a number of drink manufacturers to bring some of these concepts to market. But that broadly is one area, is, is the intentional design of new communities using natural microbes to make new kinds of fermented foods with totally new tastes and totally new nutrition properties, like this zero sugar uh, shelf stable beverage. Another one is we're working with breweries to put together new strains um, to release entirely new categories of beer that go far beyond like the IPAs and any IPAs. We can make new kinds of sour beers by designing new communities of microbes that will create new flavors in beer. And that's pretty exciting as well. I mean, beer is, beer is like the largest fermented food category. And so we're excited about that opportunity as well. So one area, again, is, is the designing of these new communities. And then the second area is the optimization of single strains. And so one strain that we're particularly fascinated by is koji. And this is, this is a superfood ingredient that comes from Japan, where it's been used for thousands and thousands of years, really wonderful flavor and health effects to make uh, sake and miso and shoyu or soy sauce. So it's been used there for thousands of years. It's very different than fermenting a kombucha or a sauerkraut those things, pretty much you kind of just put the foods together and you let the fermentation go. And there's not too much complexity to it. The sauerkraut, you, you take cabbage, you add 3% salt, and you let the thing go and you've got sauerkraut. With uh, kombucha, you take sugar and tea, you add a scoby, you let it go for a few weeks and you've got kombucha. With koji, it's a totally different animal where this thing requires very precise humidity and temperature conditions in order to grow at its most, to grow safely and effectively. And so that to, to, to produce koji at scale requires that you build out custom fermentation chambers, that you understand how to modulate the humidity and the temperature and other fermentation parameters very precisely, and that those conditions hold throughout the chamber during the whole fermentation cycle. Um, and so this is something that is, that is more difficult to produce than many other fermented foods that we know of. And I think for, largely for that reason, it hasn't really been popularized yet in the United States. And we saw an opportunity because of the incredible magical potential of koji to bring this to the United States and, and as a group of, of PhD biologists to make like safe, efficacious, scalable uh, technologies for basically growing koji and then in, in an authentic, natural way and delivering it to food producers so that they can make new kinds of food. So what is... So, I mean, you started to list some examples, but what are some... I mean, this is basically suggesting that you can kind of create almost mm -hmm. a, a health, I'm putting it in quotes, but a health-focused or a health-forward food out of kind of very unlikely 
sources. So beer, for example, or even sake. Like, what are some applications that you feel like are are the most sort of interesting and maybe unexpected, and will encourage people to think about these 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 foods and products differently? Yeah, I think I think what's so exciting and magical about Koji is so the way that it works fundamentally is that you you grow this essentially a fungus just like a mushroom is a fungus you grow this fungus on grains and they can be rice they can be oats it can be barley um, it really depends but you can select like ancient gluten free grains to grow it on um, you can grow it and as it like permeates all of these grains it releases these incredible enzymes um, that help to break down complex starches. Uh, amylases, and then also creates a lot of enzymes that break down proteins, proteases. So these things cleave these like very complex molecules into their more simple parts. And in the process, they release incredible flavors. So they create sweetness, they create umami. And then interestingly also, because they're breaking these things down, they're also making them more digestible and more quickly available to your system. So if you were to eat rice regularly versus rice that's been essentially pre-digested by koji, where it's released all these enzymes that help to break down the rice and then also turbocharge your digestive system by giving you all these enzymes to help break down foods that you wouldn't have otherwise, all the food suddenly becomes much more bioavailable to your system, much more easily digested. And so we've actually, we've tested this in some people with gut issues and many of them have remarked that they actually, that it helped to reset their gut. And so people now, because they're lacking certain microbes or lacking certain enzymes in their digestive systems, we think that it's very interesting, the possibilities of Koji for basically delivering food in forms that are like much easier for people to process, much healthier. In principle, it releases all these enzymes that break down complex starches, break down proteins, release incredible flavors, put food into a more digestible and healthy form than it was previously. And I think it's worth noting that the Japanese, they actually have, for every year for decades, they've led the world in life expectancy. They've also led the world in healthy life expectancy, which is like the length of your life that you're actually like very, very healthy. They also have far lower incidence of digestive issues than Western countries. And koji is something that's, that's very, very uniquely Japanese. And so, of course, this is, this is like very associative. But I think it's interesting to note that this fungus that they've eaten for thousands of years could perhaps be related to their like incredible health and longevity. Mm-hmm. And so the possibilities are really endless. I mean, at the end of the day, you're getting all of these like proteases and amylases that break things down. You could apply those to any kind of different food and release really incredible flavors. And so... Noma, which is arguably like the best restaurant in the world located in Copenhagen, they were the ones who first started to popularize Koji. And then from there, it, it spread to other like really high-end Michelin-starred restaurants in the United States and around the world. But so far, it hasn't permeated past those. And so predominantly in the United States, the people focused on Koji are from like really, really high-end chefs and hobbyists. But it's funny because it has so much potential to completely revolutionize the way that we make food. And of course, we want to be a part of making that happen because we think food is too processed now, it's got too much trash in it that we shouldn't be eating. And that if we can make these things naturally, there's no reason to be adding all of these like additives and preservatives and processing techniques. So um, you can, of course, imagine that if, if at heart what Koji does is it breaks these things down or releases new things, you could use it in anything. So, I mean, we've made additive-free oat milks from it where we can take Koji, we can combine it with oats and we make like a very, very sweet oat milk that's literally just oats and Koji. There's nothing else added. And when you think about when you, when you think in concept about oat milk, you hope that that's the case. But the truth is, if you look at the labels of many of these products, it's like 16 ingredients long and contains like grapeseed oil and all kinds of nonsense that they're adding in to get certain texture properties. Yeah. Um, Oof. A lot of seed oils. Amazing. Yeah. A lot of seed oils. 
And the truth is the way that they're making the oat milk, we talked about this previously, but the way that they're making the oat milk is they're taking a couple of enzyme isolates from things like Koji, and then they're basically applying them to oats at scale and industrial manufacturing techniques in order to like release some of the inherent sweetness. But that's, it's not really natural in the sense that they've just isolated out a couple of enzymes from this natural organism. Why not let the natural organism do like its full work instead of just removing a couple of enzymes that are of interest? If you let it do its full work, not only do you get way more complex flavors, you also get far more health benefits because during fermentation, koji releases all kinds of novel compounds that aren't present in the food's raw form. And they can help to nourish like the proper bacteria in your gut that you want to grow there. Um, and that also have been shown to be uh, very, very beneficial for like your the functioning of your immune system and your neuro- neuroendocrine system and your digestive system. So yeah, we're very excited about that. I mean, have you, have you thought about doing anything with like baby formula? Yeah, that, that's an area that we're focused on right now. I mean, it's, it's super interesting because that's actually how it's used as well in Japan. They have a food form called Amazake where they take the koji, they apply it to rice and other things. They break it down and then the baby gets the food in like a very, very digested and very bioavailable form. So I think it makes a lot of sense for that. I've also, as you know, used it with coffee. When you use the koji and it interacts with the coffee beans, it releases a lot of really interesting umami and sweet flavors, adding like very subtle, um, well, depending on the concentration, it can be subtle or it can be very direct as well, difference in taste to the coffee. And we've also been able to make a number of really exciting sauces from it. You can combine it with like a variety of different fruits and vegetables and unleash really incredible flavors. We fermented a variety of different vegetables and like turned them into things that taste like other fruits or really just really exciting sensory properties that like you haven't seen. And the color is interesting, the smell is interesting, and then the flavor is just incredible. And so prior to the COVID shutdowns, we were actually selling many of these into Michelin-starred restaurants in New York City because these, these are chefs who spend their whole life, like decades of their careers, looking for new flavors. And I think it's telling that when they looked at this and they tasted it, they saw, wow, these things are creating flavors that we've never seen in our like many decades of doing work in kitchens. Mm-hmm. I feel like it must be a really fun day in the lab with you guys, just like <laughs> tasting things and then having your minds blown on like an hourly basis with all the different oh, it's amazing. <laughs> it's, it's the best kind of science you can do because you get to taste the experiment. So in a lot of science experiments, you run these experiments sometimes for months and then you see the results on the back end and it's just numbers. But in this case, the output is something that you can directly taste and share with your friends. Very cool. That's fun. What about like, I mean... Just culturally, you know, you're talking about Copenhagen, just sort of these like smaller pockets. Um, I thought you were making a pun, culturally speaking. <laughs> you know, it's, uh, there's no shortage of um, wordplay here. Yeah, so obviously Japan aside, there are really like no... There hasn't been a cultural sort of embrace with Koji or this idea. I mean, I know in limited capacities, obviously yogurt and kombucha and sauerkraut, things like that, we kind of generally understand that they're like good for our gut. But what do you think it is about... It's like we have to dress everything up for Americans in terms of like, it's like a spoonful of sugar. Think about the fact that it is a fungus or it's a yeast or it's a mold. There's some kind of like fear around this world where if we don't kind of spin it and, and really pad it with like proper branding and messaging, people get really squeamish when it comes to, I mean, rightfully so, obviously there's good and bad fungus and mold and yeast and all the rest. You know, the benefits here are usually far outweighing the negatives. So I just wonder like, what do you think it's going to take or like, how do we 
serve this up in a way or present it to Americans. And I know you said you're not the branding guy, but like, how, how do we get there? How do we turn the corner and, and, and realize like all the benefits there, like other countries have? I think now is the perfect time. Like this is when all of this stuff is getting normalized. You know, 10 years ago, when people heard bacteria, they thought all bacteria was bad. I mean, that was, that was part of the impetus behind the antibiotic movement was... Right. Which is how we killed our guts in the first place. Yeah, you can take antibiotics preventatively. And if you think you have a cold, maybe it's a virus, but just in case, take an antibiotic because it'll kill bacteria and all bacteria are bad. So there couldn't possibly be any kind of unintended side effect from taking this antibiotic if you don't really, really need it. Now we know that that's not the case and that every time you take a course of antibiotics, you're killing off a significant percentage of all of the gut bacteria in your body. And that when they grow back, they often don't even grow back the same way that they were before. And so it's, it's like torching this like really, really powerful and important ecosystem that's inside of all of our bodies. And 10 years ago, or maybe 20 years ago, whenever it was, we thought, oh, it's fine. There are no good bacteria. So there's no problem with this. And now people know all about probiotics. They know about fermented foods. I think people are coming to terms with A, that the bacteria can be beneficial and that B, this is like a very, uh, like a nuanced topic in which there's a lot of gray area. And so of course there are like bacteria that are like very, very dangerous. But also there's like bacteria that are very good for you. And so it's not a black and white thing. It's a gray area. Similar with fungi, like people know about the health effects of mushrooms and adaptogens. Those are fungi. And so koji also is like a beneficial fungi. And so I think, I think truthfully, I don't think the story is like that difficult to tell. I think now the audience, like audiences are primed to understand this and, and to desire it. They know that there are things that are missing from their native gut ecosystems and they're looking to replace it and supplement it. So. Yeah, I think I think the timing for something like Koji is is really perfect, and I also think that it is inevitably going to be massive in the next five years. Like five years from now, Koji is going to be commonplace, and like it's the same thing with kombucha. Before kombucha was brought to America and popularized, people had no idea what a scoby was, and now basically anyone you talk to on the street would have some idea of kombucha, whether or not they've tried it or whether or not they like it. They're aware of it. Yeah, but for those who don't know. The scoby is the like slimy gobbledygook that's like in your kombucha drink that's responsible for all the goodness. But yeah, yeah I agree. the scoby is it stands for symbiotic culture collection of bacteria and yeast, and so it's it's all of the microbes that are present that basically take kombucha starts as just sugar and black tea. Well, depending on how they make it, sugar and some kind of tea. And what mm-hmm. the scoby does is it ferments the sugar and releases all of these like organic acids and compounds that basically turn sugar tea into kombucha, which tastes very, very different. And the reason it's like slimy and everything is that many of these microbes actually create a biofilm while they're, while they're fermenting. And so they, they secrete these different compounds that then gel together and basically create this like physical structure in which they live and are together. So it's very unique. You don't have something like that that lives in like a sauerkraut or a, even a yogurt. And so it's very unique to kombucha. And yeah, it's, it's a result of the fact that these like microorganisms are basically secreting these like gel-like structures that then come together and turn into essentially a biofilm in which they live and, and, are, and are brought together. Could you talk a little bit about like the survival of koji and, and just in terms of, you know, the different vehicles and like the kill steps involved, like what do they survive in terms of heat processing? Because I know just in general, when people take probiotics, prebiotics, there's always a question around like, do I need to refrigerate it? You know, does it die if it's heated? Can it exist outside, you know, dry, cold? As it relates to like the limitations of like 
you know, putting it in different types of food. I'm just wondering, like, it would be so cool to get like a tincture of koji and just put it in whatever I want. Yeah, totally. So I think from a, from a probiotic perspective, it really depends on the strain, whether or not you need to refrigerate it. Many of these strains can be stable at room temperature. Um, many of them also form spores and essentially like can endure for long periods of time in shelf-stable environments or even like very hot environments. And so koji is very unique as well. And it's it basically the way that it is administered in food is you grow it on these grains. And then the confusing thing about koji, by the way, is the fact that when you say koji, it can refer to either the spores of koji that haven't yet been grown, or it can refer to once you take those koji, koji spores, apply them to some kind of grain and then grow them. And then that grain koji combo is also referred to as koji. And that combo is the thing that then you would like actually integrate into food. Because at that point, you have all the enzymes that have been secreted by koji during the process of it, like growing and processed grain. And then you take those and you mix it with different foods. And at that point, then all these enzymes that it's made, all the amylases, all the proteases go to work on whatever like the, the base food that you're applying it to is. And then they release these like incredible flavors and health compounds as a result. So people have used koji in, in a diverse set of ways. Like you can, you can use it to make amazakes where you mix it with like oats. You can make like an oat milk. You can mix it with a variety of different gluten-free ancient grains. And depending on the strain of koji, there are some like the, the, the base strain is basically aspergillus orizai. That's like the very basic one. Then there are all kinds of other ones that create interesting supplemental compounds. There's one called aspergillus sutuensis, for instance, which has been used to make whiskey in Japan. And that one releases citric acid and a number of other compounds that confer like tart and sour flavors towards the food. And so that one is very unique because you can grow that one up on like on rice or quinoa or something like that. And it releases like incredibly like tart sour flavors that taste almost like like Sour Patch Kids, like Fruit Loops, like really, really complex and interesting. And so then that then begs the question of like, well, could we use like these different strains of koji to basically push flavor in different directions? And the answer to that is yes. Like it's it's vastly superior to using these like chemical additives from a flavor from a, both a flavor and a health perspective. Um, and very exciting. It's this whole new modality for making food. Um, and so you have this koji, which is basically like the grain you grew it up on, the koji spores that have grown out. You can apply that then, yeah, to these different grains like create on mazakes. You can use it to like texturize and tenderize meat. So people have used that to speed up the dry aging process. Um, where they spread the powder on meat and then it basically turns this process into something that happens in the span of days instead of much, much longer. The, the possibilities are really continuing to be uncovered. Um, chefs throughout some of the top restaurants in the country are continuing to experiment and come up with all these, all these like new modalities and applications of koji to do new things with food that people haven't imagined. I think that's like the exciting time that I feel like we're in right now is basically this moment where we have these tools of technology and, and culinary R&D where we can basically we can take these things that have been used for thousands of years and apply them in totally new ways. Mm. And so to Zoe's point, do they, does it need um, very like specific conditions once it's reached its maturity or once it's in a certain stage, is it okay to apply to something that is refrigerated, say at a specific temp versus something else that's room temperature? Yeah, totally. So there, there's a, there's like a zone in which its enzymes are most active. And that's like in the like 60-ish degree Celsius, like 140-ish degree Fahrenheit range. If you go way high above that, the enzymes denature and they're not effective anymore. If you go below that, then nothing really is going to happen in any reasonable time frame. And so it's, yeah, I think that's, that's the temperature that you want to go for is to basically hold it at that with the food that you're applying it to. Um, and then during that process, the koji's killed. 
The koji's killed off, but the enzymes endure. And the enzymes are what are most interesting about koji anyway. Like the whole value of koji ultimately is the fact that this fungus is basically releasing this incredible diversity and array of enzymes. And so the organism then is no longer active, but all the enzymes that it's created that are that you know supplement your digestive system and that help to digest and process these foods and release interesting flavors, all of those are are still active. Anyway, oh, so well, I, I guess I'm just wondering a little bit because it's it's something that we often think about ourselves, and you know, working with mushrooms and the functional power, you know, of of different medicinal mushrooms. Will you guys have a clinical trial? Like, is there anything that you'll be able to present that really? specifically points to the benefits of consuming koji that's specific to koji or will it be more general if you do it that's just about fermentation and is there something that you could produce that says like yes this plus this equals like immunity improved immunity immune function gut function therefore immune function yeah absolutely um yeah we're in the process of figuring out how we want to do that we think we've figured out some really unique ways and the way that we're fermenting koji and the process that we're using that makes the enzymes like the most dense and most active that they are that they can possibly be or that they've been seen to be on the market. So when we went to a lot of these Michelin starred restaurants, they were already purchasing koji oftentimes from other suppliers in Japan or other where, or, or elsewhere. And what we discovered was that they looked at our koji and they tasted our koji. Just from looking at it, you can tell how densely the koji is growing on the rice. Because you can see how much fuzz there is and, and how like how present it is in the rice. Is it mostly just rice with like a little growth on it? Or is it mostly like this incredibly like lush, dense growth where you can almost like not see the rice and it's like embedded in in, in everything that the koji has created as it's fermenting? So it sort um, of looks like tempeh. Yes. And so what we found was the way that we were growing the koji and the different parameters and the chambers that we built were allowing us to grow at much denser concentrations than anything else available on the market. So I think if we were to do studies, we'd want to show not only is koji like generally beneficial, but also that we've we've been able to like grow this in a, in a really, really dense way that's uniquely beneficial to people. And so I think those are eventually studies that we want to do. We just haven't had the time or the resources to carry those out just yet. But yeah, I mean, koji is incredibly fun to play around with. The possibilities are really endless. There's all kinds of tools online and resources that tell you what you can do with it. There's the Noma Guide to Fermentation. There's a new book, Koji Alchemy Out. It's really starting to catch on and become very popular. And the, the hard part has always been getting access to these strains. And so what we've done, our company, Kingdom Supercultures, is we've actually, we've gone to Japan. We've worked with a number of like the, the most traditional ancient suppliers. We've combed through dozens and dozens of different strains. And we basically selected the ones that grow most effectively. And we've we figured out how to grow them up in, in their most dense form. And now we're offering those for people to purchase and to play around with. So if you go to kingdomsupercultures.com slash koji or just kingdomsupercultures.com and then you can click for buy koji, you can order some and play around with it in your own home. And it's pretty incredible because you can use this with very basic whole foods and you can create incredibly decadent sensory experiences using just koji and like very basic foods. I cool. I'm looking for some activities Super to do with my fun. children. My husband's going to be totally into this because he's already like, he does lots of like infusions. He does, he likes to play around with like cocktails and snacks and things. And he's always interested in like what's weird and different and no one's using yet. So I think you're going to have, you're going to have a power user for sure in our household. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. I mean, you can get Aspergillus orzai, the, the workhorse organism. You can also get Aspergillus twinsis which is the very rare one, which you can't get anywhere else in the United States right now. 
And then another thing that we've done is we started growing these on heirloom grains. So instead of just like basic rice, we started growing them on Hanson Mills rice, which is a purveyor that has like hundreds of years of experience and creates like really, really high-end grains. And that koji actually tastes, it did like the smell and the flavor of that is on a whole nother level compared to basic koji. And no one else is growing koji on, on these like Hanson Mill like heirloom grains. So that's like something very exciting. I can actually see the excitement in your face when you talk about it, which is in turn very exciting and inspiring. So (laughs) I think this is going to be very cool. We're super excited for what you guys are doing. And obviously, you know, if there's a way for us to join forces to prove that fungi can definitely just like take over the world, then I think that we're going to have a winning combination here. Amazing. Well, thanks y'all for your time. Yeah, thank you so much. And and good luck to you guys. And obviously, we're going to be staying in touch. Thanks for listening to HTW. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and make sure and rate us on iTunes. You can even give us five whole stars if you think we deserve it. If you have ideas for guests or topics, you can call our 1-800 number. Yes, we have a 1-800 number at 800-674-1839 or holler at us on social at HTW Podcast. You can also head to our website at htwpodcast.com for more episode info and check out our Daily Blend blog to see what we're drinking.